So I'm curious how you are all feeling. You're both in the middle of the second full day of practice. And I imagine have this corresponding sense of settling. And then now we've all started talking about closing and going home and rides and dana and and there's experience of sort of maybe rising out of the settling into uh, a natural toppling forward into <clears throat> perhaps what's to come. <clears throat> so, how are you feeling? Let's just just shout out one word. What's present in the room right now? But just one word that just roughly describes where you are. Gratitude. <laughs> what else? Liminal. Liminal. Mm, beautiful word. Yeah. Calmness. Calmness. Too short. Too short. Come, back. come back. Don't go. Come back. <laughs> Community. Uh huh. Rested. Curious. Stillness. Anxious, anticipation, excitement, quite similar experiences, grateful. All right, and there's probably a whole panorama that wasn't named, both beautiful and challenging, or challengingly beautiful. And a practice is kind of the same, no matter whether we're coming or going or staying. (laughs) The instructions we gave you on the first night and the first day and instructions we'll give you today and tomorrow, in a way it's the same practice. Different conditions, different circumstances. The quiet, peaceful, serene Dharma Hall of Spirit Rock, beautiful, nature of the San Geronimo Valley or downtown San Francisco, Oakland, or in your office or in your bedroom office or back with your kids or your aging parents or whatever it is, whatever situation you're in, the practice isn't so different. The orientation to and the meeting of reality and experience as it is, there's a fundamental orientation that is, I would say, the same, which is we bring as much awareness, mindfulness, heartfulness to the moment, whatever it is, beautiful, profound, profane. Of course, as a human being, we have our preferences. We might prefer the quiet serenity of Spirit Rock versus the bustle of downtown San Jose or back in the office in meetings on Zoom tomorrow or next day. But regardless, we show up with as much presence, awareness as we can. In the same way that you have done here for these days, showed up, sit down, Get present. Okay, this time I'm going to really be present. Really going to feel my body. I'm going to sense my heart. I'm going to meet everything with softness and kindness. 
Oh, but stop coughing. Oh. They have COVID? Oh. Move my seat. Oh. May all beings be happy, but not you. <clears throat> so what's revealed is the practice is humbling. Retreats, if anything, and meditation, if anything, one thing, it's humbling. Does anybody not feel humble? Anybody feel humbled by your practice? You, right? <clears throat> yeah, I'm going on retreat to Spirit Rock to be mindful and pay attention. And, and then what happens? <laughs> and then life takes over. The mind takes over. Reactivity takes over. Sleepiness, dullness, restlessness, boredom. Spacing out happens. You know, from the group yesterday, people were observing, I'm always doing, it's so hard to be. I'm always judging. I'm checked out most of the time. Hard to be here with myself without all my gadgets and devices. I'm always regretting what happened in the past. I'm always reviewing with 2020 hindsight. And a whole host of other things get revealed. And that's why it's humbling. We get to see ourselves naked, exposed, without our busyness and distraction to, to mirror our reality, our inner reality particularly. And it's not easy to be with that or face that or to see that. That's why it's humbling. But I'd say it's good humbling because if something's not seen or understood, what happens? It continues. What happens? We act it out. Right? So practice is making the unconscious conscious. Or as the expression goes, if I can remember it rightly, um, revealing things that are hidden in plain sight. Revealing reality that's always here, we just don't see it for various reasons. And the good news about this, all these things, these habits, these patterns, these tendencies of mind and heart being seen and revealed is we get to understand them. We get to um, have choicefulness about whether we want to continue those, engaging in those. And we get to maybe find peace or freedom in relationship to them. It's a reading that I enjoy sharing from... um, Archbishop Francois Fenelon was written in the 16th century. Uh, he's a um, in, in seminary, training uh, priests, and making the, the 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 using the word light as a, a reference for for awareness. He says, as light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. Anybody have that experience? We are amazed at our form of blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart and mind a whole swarm of shameful feelings. Again, this is 16th century um, Europe. Like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. I wouldn't go that far, but anyhow. (laughs) You know, just, you know, it's contextual. We could never believe that we'd harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We're not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. While our faults diminish, the light by which we see them grows brighter. The awareness grows. Bearing in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady, the problem, when the cure begins. We only perceive the malady when the cure begins. 
Without that light, without that awareness, no seeing. Without seeing, no transformation. So what you see, whatever you're humbled by or challenged by, actually is, as they say in the Dharma, manure for Bodhi. It's the grist that actually allows us to wake up, to be free. So if you've struggled and challenged and been confronted by patterns in yourself, in your heart, in your mind, and ways of being, good, good. Because you get to see them and hopefully bring some understanding. Mindfulness is not just a practice of attention. It's not just a training of attention. The deeper orientation is in, the, in the context of uh, Buddhist teachings is that mindfulness reveals, illuminates. Awareness illuminates our experience. Why? For the sake of understanding. For the sake of understanding ourselves, for understanding the human condition. And as the Buddha oriented us to, paying attention to where and how we suffer. And where and how we can find peace and freedom in the midst of our experience and life. There's a wonderful teaching from Padmasambhava, who was the founder of Tibetan Buddhism in the 8th century. And um, at least I believe this was ascribed to him. He said, if you want to understand your past, look to your present conditions. If you want to understand the past, look to how your present experience is now. If you want to know the future, anybody want to know your future? Look to your present actions. How you live, how you act, how you respond to experience now will determine how that will unfold in the future. So if we carry on, as we often do in life, busily reacting and resisting and judging and fighting and struggling with reality, what will our future be like? Resisting, struggling, (laughs) grappling with reality. If we can find some presence and awareness and kindness or compassion or letting go or wisdom in relationship to that, what will our future be like? More likely, more easeful, more likely, more peaceful. The Buddha once said, in, um, as recorded in the Dhammapada, he said, better to live one day wise and meditative than to live a hundred days foolish and uncontrolled. Well, you've done two days, so you're, you've got some credit. Better to live one day wise and meditative, contemplative, aware, than to live a hundred years foolish and uncontrolled. It's a powerful statement. That what you do here, cultivating these qualities of awareness, clarity, wisdom, so seeds for actually a lot of ripening in your life. This retreat isn't just a three-day retreat. The ripples of this retreat will ripple for days, weeks, months, even years. You might remember a teaching or, or in a moment or an experience three years later and go, oh, that's what they meant by that. That's what that experience was. That's why I was able to let go. So as strange as it might seem, what we're doing here 
is actually a training for life. This might seem as far removed from your life as you could get, right? But the principles are the same. The principles of how we meet life, ourselves, each other, the world. And what the, what the, the inner qualities we develop here of awareness, presence, resilience, steadiness, kindness, really what serves us when we're you know meeting the challenges of life and we know there's plenty of those because you just were there <laughs> and you're there here now the buddha said by effort and mindfulness discipline and self-mastery let the wise one make of themselves an island which no flood can overwhelm by effort and awareness, discipline and self-mastery, let the wise ones make of themselves an island, right? a steadiness, a steadfastness, a resilience, a stability that the floods of life don't overwhelm. So many teachings of the Buddha pointing to the possibility, the potential of what's possible in this life. But, it doesn't happen just because you wish it. It happens through practice, through training, through understanding, through dedication. It happens as we bring mindfulness and awareness to our experience, we begin to understand ourselves. We begin to understand, why is it that I'm not at peace? Why is it that I don't feel free? Why is it that I'm not happy? Right? Here we are, Spirit Rock, beautiful environment, nice food, seemingly nice people, nothing to do for a few days, no work, no kids. Seemingly, one should be swimming in just ease and delight. Right? Why not? But that may not be your experience. So if, if not, what's, what's happening? What gets in the way of our natural ease? As Diana mentioned, Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching, Buddha's happiness is available, please help yourself. Happiness cannot be found, as Gendra Rinpoche says, but is available and accompanies you every instant. It's your nature to be at ease, to be, have well-being. But that's not how we normally abide. And so we want to understand what's binding, what's occluding that experience. Krishnamurti said, the truth is what sets us free. So that it's, it's the truth of an understanding our experience, understanding our mind. And when we return to our lives, we bring these qualities, hopefully some clarity, some awareness, some understanding that allows us to be more responsive to our experience, to, to the conditions. As beautiful as all these Buddha images are, they are, in my view, a little problematic because we think we should be like that. I've never met a person, someone, I've never met anybody like that, except when they're mummified. 
I don't want to be mummified. I don't want to be a stone. I don't want to be stiff. I want to be fluid. I want to be human. I want to be embodied. I want to be alive. I want to be present. I want to feel the fullness and richness of human experience. Right? These statues don't, you know, they, they, they embody a beautiful quality, equanimity, stillness, presence, love sometimes. But our experience is much more dynamic than that. And so, so our practice is actually allowing us to be more fully ourselves in our lives. So we had an interesting discussion in the group today about the, the you know, I made the ref the analogy as often teachers do of uh, a jar of water with mud in it. So this one is, um, I don't know how much you can see through it, but I can see through and I hold it to light. There's um, some mud and, and dirt and stuff in it and then there's water. And, you know, so the familiar analogy is um, our life when you, I hope I can do this without spilling it everywhere, right? We live our life and, and our mind is usually like that. It's cloudy. It can feel dull. It's cluttered. It's busy. It's full. We don't, and with that, because of that, we can't see so clearly. And as we come to Spirit Rock, we come to meditation, we come to a retreat, that static busyness clutter starts to calm down, starts to clarify. And what happens when it clarifies? We see more clearly. As I've said, sometimes we see clearly it's not so pretty what we see. It's humbling. But we see more clearly. In our lives, the analogy that was coming up in the group, and I don't know if I were going to remember it as, as well as it was discussed in the group. Um, in our lives, we get caught up, we get reactive. Anybody get reactive in life? You know, pissed off and grumpy and angry and resistant and judgy and like the last hour, you know. Um, so the, the equivalent is we, we get lost in the, in the mud and we get lost in, in the turmoil. Right? We get caught up, someone pisses us off, we get nasty emails, someone says that a slight, accuses us of something we didn't do, we're late for a meeting, all oh, the many ways we get stressed and we get triggered and we, and we get stirred up, our nervous system gets stirred up. And then we think, oh, well, I'm not like that. I'm not like those calm Buddha statues. I've blown it. I've lost it. What a waste of money. Three days of spirit rock. And look at me. I'm already, it's 9.05 at work, and I'm on a Zoom call, and I'm already pissed off. What's the point? And or we're late for a meeting. We're in the car, and we're stuck in traffic, and we're anxious and afraid and whatever. We get home, and it's lonely, and we're depressed, or whatever. All kinds of things. And we get caught in the mud. And then, as the millions of times that happened here these last few days, we mindfulness arises, awareness is, a, a re, sort of reasserts itself and says, "Wow, look at you! You're really confused. You're really angry. You're really scared right now." And in that moment, even though we, st- we still might be feeling all the turmoil of those emotions in the mud in the jar. It's as if we've taken a step outside of the jar and go, wow, look at that. I'm really pissed off at this person on my Zoom call. I'm really anxious about this upcoming meeting. And so 
the reason I want to make that analogy is um, it's not that we necessarily change this confused, angry state, but we bring awareness and presence to it and we're no longer caught in it. As Diana was pointing to yesterday, we disidentify. There's space. And you've seen that in your retreat over and over and over. You're caught in some, reacting to some pain, lost in some fantasy, some emotional turmoil, and then maybe somebody coughs or a bell goes or a teacher says something and suddenly you wake up in the trance and you go, oh, look at that. I'm really lost. It's really painful to be lost. And hopefully there's a moment of tenderness or compassion for the pain of being so lost. So that's how our practice translates in our lives is we just continue this same awareness and knowing. Same kind, curious attention to experience. So I want to talk about some of the things that we will come to have to work with in our lives, but I want to just talk briefly about a frame that the Buddha speaks to, which I think is a very, very potent frame for understanding experience, which if we don't understand, we're in more contention with reality. You could think of freedom that these teachings are pointing to as a non-contentious, non-reactive relationship to life to experience, to reality. But when we don't understand life, we're much more likely to be in contention and reactivity to it. So these three principles or characteristics or qualities the Buddha spoke to that kind of permeate every part of our experience, every part of life. The first and the most obvious is things change. You've been noticing that in your experience here. How many moods and thoughts and mental states and sensations and breaths and things have happened this retreat? You see, life is just this flow of changing experience. And it seems so real and important or intense or something in the moment, and then something else happens, and it's gone. You'll be feeling most delicious bliss and rapture and joy and spaces. And you think, oh, I'm almost close to enlightenment. I'm really there. And then someone coughs and you get reactive again, that person again. And then that moment of bliss is gone. And now you're caught in anger. And then you catch your breath and you breathe and you let go. It's like, wow, that's really painful to feel anger. And you let go. Right? We see the waterfall nature of our experience. When we don't understand things change, what do we do? We hold on to pleasurable things. We keep chasing after pleasurable experience because we think, oh, it's going to last. This is going to last. This bliss is going to last. This state is going to last. Or whatever pleasurable experience. But we know, intellectually at least, things are going to change. If we know things change, we, it, it takes out the hunger, the driving, the craving for a certain experience. Bliss comes, joy comes, as Blake says, kiss the joy as it flies, live in eternity's sunrise. Appreciate the joy, the beauty, the love, the creativity when it rises, and let it go when it goes. Because like everything, it will go. One of the first things we do when we leave retreat is we let go. We let go of this beautiful community and we let go of this beautiful land and we let go of these beautiful states that may have arisen. 
Why? Because we have to say goodbye to say hello to the next thing, which is the shuttle. <laughs> San Francisco, Oakland Airport. Hmm. The 101 freeway. Hmm. 580 freeway. Oh, traffic. Oh, my favorite. And if we understand that, that everything is changing, when we meet negative, difficult, unpleasant experience, we go, oh, it's unpleasant, and it will pass. I was running, I, I run mindfulness teacher trainings, and I was teaching in Europe last week, and um, a couple of weeks ago, and one of our students, who's a son of my colleague who's teaching the training with me, was giving a talk on impermanence. And he gave this beautiful story of... Um, uh, uh, Achan Suchita was a wonderful uh, Theravada monk teaches at Spirit Rock very connected to the insight, insight scene here and, and Narayan this teacher was uh, in training was, giving us, was, was walking with Suchito through the f- countryside in England where Suchito lives and it's full of nettles in the summer lots of nettles and he's barefoot bare-legged just wearing some robes and he walks right through the, all these stinging nettles and Narayan's like trying to cover himself up and protect his arms and legs as you might do because you don't want to get stung. It's unpleasant. And Narayan says, what's up? Like, why are you walking through the nettles? And he's like, it's impermanent. It stings and it goes away. What's the problem? There's no problem. It's just sensation. So next time you're walking through stinging nettles, <laughs> it's just sensation. So if we understand Things change, like retreats come and go, meditations come and go, beauty and sorrow comes and go. We can hold it more lightly. We can have a less contentious relationship to it. We're neither fixating and demanding it stay because we like it. And we're neither freaked out because something's unpleasant. We know it's going to pass. And because of that, the, 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 what's underneath the, our, our sort of human relationship to that experience is one of fundamental vulnerability. Things change, we're vulnerable, period. It's why we feel vulnerable. It's why we might feel insecure. It's why we might want to control because it's, it's unpleasant to feel vulnerable in the face of change. We're vulnerable because we age. We're vulnerable because we get sick. We're vulnerable because we die. We're vulnerable because we lose things and people we, and things we love. And many of you are dealing with loss here in the pandemic and, and life, lots of loss. And so the, 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 the wisdom that comes from, from seeing, from mindfulness, in this case, being aware of impermanence, that everything changes, nothing lasts, there's nothing really to hold on to, the, the human response to that is tenderness and vulnerability. And the wise response to that vulnerability is compassion, is kindness, is care for your vulnerability. Just as when you're with someone you love or care about, your children, partner, friends, and they're dealing with loss, they're dealing with change, they're dealing with uncertainty, you're naturally kind and reassuring and supportive of them because it's not easy to deal with loss. 
with change, with the uncertainty. The only certainty in life is certain. Is the only certainty in life is uncertainty. I was with my mum recently in England, and she just turned eighty-one, and um, been through some incredible things where she's healthier than she has been for twenty, thirty years, and she's exercising and just fabulous, just really blossoming as a human being. 81, I wish I hope I can say the same. And she's having this beautiful family gathering with her sisters and their nieces and nephews. And she's, they're walking down the road to the restaurant and her hip, for some reason, doesn't operate normally as it does because she's got a bad hip, falls over, breaks her hip, and she's in hospital getting hip surgery. Life is uncertain. Life is fragile. That is the, that is the, the, the wisdom of knowing impermanence. And so when I talked about mindfulness being in service of understanding of wisdom, when we understand, for example, everything is changing, everything's impermanent, we bring more wisdom to life. We don't take things for granted. We see the preciousness of this life. You have, let me see, seventeen hours left at Spirit Rock. <laughs> 18 hours left at Spirit Rock. 19 hours, maybe. Life is precious. Don't spend your time planning what you're going to do going home or what kind of you know, latte you're going to have at the coffee shop in Fairfax or what kind of pizza, or whatever it is. You can, that's going to come. You'll figure that out. The brain is greater anticipation, and we do it too much. Be here. Enjoy the light as you walk down for dinner. See the preciousness of spring. How many springs will we have in our life? Not many. Really, some of us very few. Some of us, this might be the last spring we have. We don't know. If we don't know, then let's wake up to actually be here for it because it's beautiful. It's exquisite. It's a gift. So we th- see things are, are changing. We th- see things, because they're in changing, things are unsatisfying. We like things to last. I've just been fixing up a house I own. That's a recipe for suffering. Houses don't last. It's like this fallacy that we fix up a house. It's, it's this permanent sense, call it state of entropy. And dissolution, especially the flimsy wooden houses built in, in, in America mostly. They are like they are matchsticks, you know, blown over. But the, the, because things don't last, there's an inherent unsatisfactory. Like the fact that this retreat's ending makes it unsatisfying. Well, for some of you, it's very satisfying. <laughs> so, whoopie do, it's finally ending. But the Buddha talked about this characteristic of your experience. He called it dukkha incapable of providing lasting satisfaction or difficult to bear that so much of experience, not all by any means, but some of experience is difficult to bear. What in your experience in this retreat has been difficult to bear? Maybe your physical, your body, your pain hurting, right? The achingness, the chronic pain. Maybe some of the heart, some of the, 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 the loneliness or fear or anxiety or dread or trauma hard to bear. Dealing with your mind and its angst and catastrophizing, hard to bear. And again, so 
as I was speaking about yesterday, it's an essential that with our awareness practice, we infuse that attention that with care, with kindness. So we can meet our difficult experience, the dukkha of our experience, with more ease. Because it's hard. My, I define dukkha as hard to be human, hard to be in a body, right? hard to have a mind that's not really in our control. I hope you discovered that. Your mind is not under your control. <laughs> it's a life of its own. Thoughts have a life of their own. Thoughts think themselves without a thinker. And the third characteristic he points to is the selfless, impersonal, universal nature of experience. We take our experience so personally as if it's, I'm the only one, but actually we have this profound commonality of experience. This commonality of our human body, subject to joys and sorrows, aches and pains, our minds and the wayward thoughts and habits and tendencies, our hearts with its moods and joys and delights and travesties, right? the human imps and these impersonal forces that move through us. And we take, try to take ownership of it. This is me and mine. But actually, when we pay attention, it's all happening by itself. Do you really own and control your breath? I mean, you can control your breath. But right now, in this talk, have you been consciously breathing? No, it happens by itself. Do you tell your heart to beat? No, it beats by itself. You cut your hand, do you, you tell your skin to heal? No, it heals itself. This, hap- this whole thing is happening selflessly, miraculously. And when we see that, it allows us again to disidentify. We start see how that's starting to clear the, with the awareness class starts to become less opaque. We start to see the nature of our experience not so solid and real as we like to think it is. So a good example from a group today, someone shared, uh, and I asked them if I could share their story, and, and they said yes. So, uh, so there's a person uh, mislays his glasses, as I often do. In fact, these are borrowed from the, um, you know, the manager's room because, you know, <laughs> glasses, they just have legs, and then they just disappear. They're impersonal. And they're clearly not mine because <laughs> they're everywhere. Anyhow, this person uh, lo- loses his glasses somewhere. And because he loses glasses, he looks at the schedule, can't quite see it, sort of you know, approximates what time the meditation is. <laughs> Comes into the, the instructional meditation half an hour late, misses the instructions. So he's sort of you know, beating himself up, for, you know, frustrated that he missed the instructions, but made it just in time for the rain meditation which was perfectly timed because he's quite triggered and activated. He's annoyed and he's lost his glasses and he's come in late and, oh, rain. Okay, recognize and allow and investigate. How? Oh, why am I so upset about losing my glasses? Nurture with kindness. Oh, yeah, it's painful to be so kind of caught up. And then when, that, when the meditation ends and the sort of the reactivity ends, and the clarity that, again, comes through mindfulness, through awareness. He has this realization, oh, I lost my glasses and I came late to the meditation. End of story. All that other stuff about I'm aging, and I'm forgetful, my life's on the downhill trajectory, what's the point? I may as well give up, I'm a loser, everybody knows it. That's dukkha. 
That's the selfing story. That's taking it personally. Right? Losing things, is, it just happens. Getting triggered, emotions reacting, they happen. Uh, due to causes and conditions. So when we see with that cloud, it's like, oh, there's no drama. Lost my glasses, came in late, sat down. That was the data. Everything else was painful drama. And that's what we do all the time. <clears throat> Self-created suffering. And that's why we practice, to try and illuminate some of that. So um, so that was a preamble to my talk, <laughs> which I won't get to the rest of the talk, by the way, just in case you're wondering. But I will get, I'll just mention it. So I, I, I wanted to share what I call the ABCs of living in life, the ABCs, living with awareness, with balance and compassion, three really important qualities as we orient to anything and everything that happens in life, as we've been orienting to here with mindfulness. When we go back into our lives, just as you had an intention to be here, may one of your intentions be, may I be willing to meet and be open to whatever arises in my circumstances, in my experience as I leave the retreat. May I be willing to be present for what is. On the bus, in the cafe, in the shop, on the plane, get home to my house and my whoever you live with or not live with, or your work or your technology, may I be present, may I be, have the willingness to show up and radically accept what is. Right? Part of mindfulness is this quality of radical allowing of what's here to be. We don't stop with radical acceptance allowing because we also need to engage and act, which is why the this, this C of the ABC is, is responding with care, with wisdom, with kindness. Can I meet what is? This is a, one of my favorite pieces of writing. This is from uh, Zen teacher Jan Chosen Bays. And she's talking about the vow. And in Zen, there's a lot of intentions oriented through vows and she says i in this present moment i all things come to be and i vow to choose what is if there is cost i choose to pay if there is need i choose to give if there is pain i choose to feel if there's sorrow i choose to grieve when burning i choose heat when calm i choose peace when starving i choose Hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I'm able to respond to what is. Therefore, I vow to choose this moment's entrance gate. I vow to choose this moment with awareness. One phrase that we sort of maybe cursorily mentioned on this retreat that I find very helpful in that meeting, that radical meeting of what is, is the phrase like this. Whatever it is, is like this. You walk down to dinner, dinner is like this. 
how your body is in this moment, maybe tired and achy, is like this. Achiness is like this. How is your heart feeling this, in this moment? Grateful, sad, bored, joyful, is like this. How is your mind in this moment? Like this. And I love that phrase I originally heard from, I think, Achen Sumedho, because it sort of takes all the argument out of it. Well, it should be like that, but I prefer that. No, I really wish... It's like this. It's like this. And my reaction to it is like this. My feelings about it is like this. My wanting it to be different is like this. My judging of it is like this. So see if you can remember some phrase like that. It's an equanimity phrase. Things are as they are. This is how it is. It's like this. And again, it, we don't stop there. It's, that's not the end game because we have to make choices. We have to act. We have to plan. We have to strategize. We have to engage. We have to do all kinds of things in our life. But first, can we pause, like in the stop practice, breathe, notice, oh, it's moments like this. The amount of times I've left retreat, get to the airport, checking in, oh, sorry, your flight's canceled. Oh, it's like this. It's a long wait at the airport. When I last, I was teaching in Baja, my kayaking retreat down in Mexico, it was in, there's a yogi here. Uh, it was like a nine hour sitting in this tiny little airport waiting room. It's like this. Not quite a beach in Baja wilderness, Mexico. It's like this. So we meet with awareness, with mindfulness. Mindfulness provides a steadiness a groundedness, a centeredness, which is one of the most resilience-building qualities we have in our toolkit. Meditation itself is a practice of resilience because we sit through thick or thin, high or low, with whatever shows up. That is resilience-building. And in practice, we do this radical thing of turn towards whatever is. And normally in our lives, you know, what do we do? We don't turn towards, we run away. We avoid, we distract, we put on Netflix, whatever our chosen, you know, Ben and Jerry's ice cream is. So there's some lines here from a great poem from Jennifer Wellwood talking about this turn. She's talking about how it arises emotionally and what happens when we turn. She says, turning, willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. And she goes on to say, each condition I flee from, I run from, pursues me. Ever notice that? Try to run away from something? Try to run to Spirit Rock? Oh God, it's here again? Really? I paid a lot of money and it's still here. Go to Hawaii, it's still here. Go to work, it's still here. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. And you've probably seen this. 
Things arise in the meditation. Anger, fear, loss, sadness. We be with it, we feel it, we allow it. And it often becomes, it melts, it transforms into something else. Tenderness, vulnerability, humanness. So we're meeting experience with awareness. What's also helpful is finding balance, finding groundedness in the midst of the turmoil of life. And compared to this, life often feels quite tumultuous. Probably does right now, like if you think about your life, busy, complex, rushing, overstimulated, time scarcity. And so it's essential that we ask ourselves, maybe ask us before you leave, what is it that allows me to find balance in the midst of my experience? What is it that allows me to find steadiness in the same way that meditation or being a here on retreat has it maybe allowed you to find some groundedness, some presence, even in the midst of whatever difficulty you're experiencing. When we've asked you for what you're experiencing, there's quite a range of not easy experience to be with, but you're able to find some balance and steadiness. And one of the things that's most important in, in terms of life and balance is both knowing what allow, allows us to find, to be resourced. What allows us to not be overwhelmed, to be grounded in the midst of something. And there's a lot of overwhelming things happening in life. Pandemic, the war, injustice, climate crisis, name it, long list, social justice issues. There's a really interesting line from a poet, Jack Gilbert. He says, to, to make injustice the only measure of your attention is to praise the devil. To make injustice the only measure of attention is to praise the devil. We must risk, we can do without pleasure, but not del delight. We must risk delight in the ruthless furnace of the world which means we need to have balanced perspective on how we see reality. Reality is both beautiful and horrific. It's spring here and it's bombs are dropping in Ukraine. It's beautiful and it's painful. Life is a paradox and our practice teaches us how to live with paradox, how to hold it, this great line from the Sagadati says, the mind creates the abyss, the division, the polarity, the otherness, and the heart crosses over it. The mind creates the abyss, the sense of separation, the heart crosses over it. The mind creates duality, the heart can transcend it. And this poem, beautiful poem by Mark Nepo, that speak to this, these dual realities, that everything is beautiful and I am so sad. Everything is beautiful and I am so sad. I am so sad, he ends the poem, and everything is beautiful. This is how the heart makes a duet of wonder and grief. So during the pandemic, I, I, I've been teaching a sunrise meditation on Zoom for two years. Uh, some of you have been on it. And when the pandemic started two years ago, um, in spring here, not necessarily spring in Wisconsin, but spring here, uh, March, um, I made it you know, an ongoing point to, to have a balanced attention. Right? Because of our negativity bias, because of what we get fed in the media, we attune to what's wrong, what's negative. And there's plenty what's wrong in the world. 
plenty of suffering and misery. And there's also plenty of goodness and beauty. And if we only see one and not the other, we have a distorted perception. And if we want to stay balanced, we need to see both. So just like you may have done here, you might have had a really painful meditation or maybe a difficult retreat. And then you, you know, maybe the teacher said, well, go outside, take a walk, look at the sun moving through the grasses or the wind moving through the grasses and the light on the cherry blossom or whatever that beautiful pink thing is out there. I don't think it's cherries, but something. Um, look at the, the iridescence of the feathers of the turkeys and see, oh, right, it's, it's soothing to the heart. And then when we come back into sit and we feel our heart that's forlorn and tender, we actually have more ballast and resilience. So know what nurtures you. Know what nourishes you. Know it, whether it's your meditation or connection and, and, and friends or a hot bath or you know, beautiful music or literature or poetry or whatever. Know what nurtures you so you can find balance in the midst of all the other things that are stressful and difficult. It might sound kind of obvious for me to say that. And for some of you, it, that, that means rest. Some of you, it means self-care. Some of you are really good at help taking care of others, and that's beautiful. And what gets neglected is home. Right? Maybe you've noticed that here. I've worked with burnt-out environmental activists for years and years and years, and often when they come and retreat after not being on retreat for 10 years, they go home and they quit their job. Why? Because they're so burnt out, they're ineffective. So we tend to ourselves, we catch up with ourselves, we listen to what's needed in our hearts, in our bodies, in our mind, in our life, in our relationships. And thirdly, the C's, I'm just going to touch on this, is, is, is how we meet and respond to life, which is with compassion, with care, with kindness. Right? I've been pointing to all the, the vulnerabilities of being human. And the most natural response when you meet someone who's in pain or in suffering or vulnerable or struggling is what? Is to be care, is to you know, put a hand on the shoulder, is to reach out, is to love. And where we forget to do that is with ourselves. To love our bodies that struggle, to love our hearts that are tender, to love our minds that are wayward. And particularly during this pandemic, which we're, you know, who knows where we are and it, it keeps ebbing and flowing with the social isolation and the, the pain and the anxiety and depression, all the difficult things that come from that. So important that we find a way to find some heartfulness and connection and to meet whatever tenderness is arising in us as a result of our life or the challenge of our life. So I'm aware of the time, and I don't want to be late for our blessed cooks. So I'm going to wrap up with a couple of things. So I'm going to wrap up with a couple of poems. Just You might have noticed I like poetry. Partly because poetry says something things succinctly, and I don't have much enough time. So you may think about, as you're going back into your life, well, what am I going to do in relationship to the world? And this poem beautifully speaks to that Martha, Martha Postlewaite called Clearing. She says, Do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense forest of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life 
falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue. So this is what we've been doing here. We've created a clearing in the dense forest of your life and we wait here patiently sitting with awareness until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. And only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue, so worthy of your attention, so worthy of love. So let's sit together for a moment just to let those words settle. And sense your heart, body, mind, like this, this moment like this. Meeting it with awareness and kindness like this. Last words from Lynn Ungar on the pandemic. Center down, she says, when your body has become still, reach out with your heart. Know that we are connected in ways that are terrifying and beautiful. Know that our lives are in one another's hands. Do not reach out your hands. Reach out your heart. Reach out your words tomorrow. Reach out all the tendrils of compassion that move invisibly where we cannot touch. Promise this world your love, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health so long as we shall live. Thank you for your presence and practice and kind attention. So we'll have dinner. Um, There is, as you walk out, you will notice uh, (laughs) an unparalleled amount of stimulation called literature and books and things. And just breeze past them. (laughs) They'll be there till tomorrow morning. Go outside, be mindfully walking down the hill, mindfully eating. And then we come back here for some sitting after dinner at 7.15. There's a BIPOC affinity sit at 7.15. And then a walk and another sit. So please uh, enjoy this precious evening and, and this precious last evening of silence. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.